Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Romans 9. Uh, we had a little trouble with the microphone last week, and I, know, I think most of you could hear me in here. Uh, I'm going to get confirmation. It's working now. We are. Okay, good. Um, if, if, uh, it's a little bit hard to hear, especially sometimes as, as I get a little quieter. We've got some uh, devices out on the foyer. You can just pick one up. They're discreet. You can just slide a little uh, earbud in your ear and listen, and it gives you a little pickup. Uh, if you need that, uh, please be, uh, feel free to use it. Uh, we'd be glad for you to have it. We do hope that you can hear what's happening. In Romans 9, uh, Paul is anticipating a few questions that might come to our minds uh, as we consider grace. Particularly, if God's grace is as triumphant and powerful as, as He has said it is, then uh, how do you explain the experience of Israel, God's people? As you look back, there's a lot of rebellion, a lot of turning. Uh, the, the words, they provoked God to anger, are used an awful lot in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, as Paul goes, uh, he sees so many of the Jews rejecting Christ, the, the promised Savior. If grace is so great, why isn't it having a bigger effect among the Jews? And Paul's answer is that it doesn't depend on man who runs and works and searches. It depends on God who has mercy. And even as you look through the Old Testament, you see that the sovereign choosing of God, that He chose to give a promise to Isaac but not Ishmael, that He chose to work with Jacob while rejecting Esau, that He chose to give mercy to Moses while hardening Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. And as we think about that, some questions come up. Uh, our passage deals with the next one. If you have, uh, would like to hear some of the other ones that are earlier in the chapter, uh, those sermons are available on our website. Uh, I don't have enough time to go through them all again, nor would I imagine most people would want me to. Um, but this passage is a powerful passage, and it helps us see the God who is worthy of our worship. Uh, let's, we're going to read Romans 9, verse 19, to the end of the chapter, but before we do, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we are needy people, and the thing we need most is to know you, to know the kind of God you are, what you are like, to know you is what would fill our souls. Uh, to know you is to taste of the glory uh, for which, by your mercy, we have been and are being prepared. We pray that you would help us see clearly today. That you would give us the humility to receive your word and to trust it and to bend our minds and our hearts to you rather than ask you to bend us. We pray you would forgive us of our sins and that you would show us a great and awesome Savior in whom we can trust, who would lead us in faith and repentance, who would make a way for us to enjoy you forever. We do pray that you would minister to us through your word, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 9, verse 19. This is God's word. You will say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? even us, whom He has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed He says in Hosea, those who were not My people, I will call My people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not My people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, and that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. This is God's Word. It is completely true and it is utterly trustworthy. In 1997, there was a movie that was released called The Game. Uh, Michael Douglas played the lead figure. His name was Richard Van uh, Orton. And he had inherited uh, wealth and a business from his father. And he himself had turned that business even more successful. He was driven to succeed in business. Uh, it, It made him a difficult man for whom to work. And it had cost him a number of his relationships, including his marriage. And it was in the process of costing him his relationship with his brother Conrad. And so, as his 48th birthday was approaching, a day that was significant because his father, on his 48th birthday, had committed suicide by jumping off the very house where now Richard Van Orton lived. Uh, As the 48th birthday for Van Orton was approaching, his brother decided to get him a a really spectacular gift. A gift where he had secured the efforts of consumer research services. A group that would plot a a birthday event that was so fantastic and so awesome that you had to qualify for it uh, physically and psychologically. And so they ran Van Orton through a series of tests and concluded that he wasn't qualified. And so his plans were to go home alone on his birthday and do nothing but have a TV dinner. But as his birthday was approaching, some odd things began to happen, dangerous things, things where he was threatened and had narrow escapes. And and it had the fingerprints of this CRS group on them. And he began to think maybe the game was really ongoing until he was kidnapped, flown to Mexico, buried alive. He had another narrow escape. And as he emerged from that prison, he uh, discovered that his uh, credit cards had been all turned off, that his bank account was completely drained. 
And he discovered that CRS was a scam out to get the wealth from the rich clientele that they had fooled. He was determined to go find out the, the bottom line here. And he went back to his house, which was a story in and of itself. He went to a, a, a secret safe, opened it and pulled out a, a handgun, made his way to the CRS offices where he had been uh, examined and, and, and been ex- told about the game, only to find that they were completely vacant, as if the company had never existed. Trying to figure out what to do, he met one of the people who had worked there, saw him and held him at gunpoint, held him hostage, brought him to the roof of the building where he could have a heart-to-heart chat. He just wanted his life back. The man said, look, it's all been a game. This has all been planned. It's still part of the game. And he asked him about the gun he was holding. Where, Where did it come from? And when Van Orton told him, he said, all right, we didn't know about that gun. Every other gun in your house, we knew we were coming to this point. But every other gun in your house, we'd taken the bullets out and put in blanks. That gun is really loaded. This is just a game. And and you could see doubt mixed with suspicion beginning to wash over Van Orton. And the door from the stairs to the roof burst open. Out came his brother holding a bottle of champagne to celebrate the game's end. Only Van Orton, in a panic, fired the gun. The bottle of champagne exploded and blood began to appear on the clothes of his brother. And now he moved from doubt and suspicion to painful regret, to guilt, and to despair. And the same despair that had set in on his father on his 48th birthday now washed over him, and he jumped from the building, crashed through a skylight of a lower-level roof, only to land on one of those air mattresses that stuntmen land on, surrounded by all of his friends, all of his co-workers, all of his employees, all of the family was there, and then even his brother walks out having uh, the fake blood. Everything, even the last event, had been planned by CRS. Now, in the story, Van Orton does everything he wants to do, He makes his choices, but at every step of the way, he simply ends up right where CRS had planned it. And it's a good picture of what the Bible says about the sovereignty of God. That as you make decisions in your life, as you do the things that you want to do, at every point, you end up right where God had planned from beforehand. That must be how we understand God's sovereign power because of the question that Paul says you're going to ask. If you've been listening to what he said about Ishmael and Isaac, about Jacob and Esau, about Moses and Pharaoh, then you must come to the conclusion, you will say to me then, verse 19, you will say this, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? If everything that we do only is doing what God had planned long beforehand, and we can never get off that. Why does God ever find fault? We're just on the path that He planned from before. He says, if you understand sovereignty, you will ask this question. He must know it. He must have heard it many times. He must know it because maybe He Himself had asked this question. And if you've been paying attention to Romans 9, I imagine the question's gone through your head too. 
Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Now, the answer you expect is a defense of how we're responsible, but that's not the answer he gives. Look what he answers. Verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's his response. That's his answer. Who are you to challenge God? Who are you to point at God and say, you know, I'm not sure you got that right, God. You shouldn't be finding fault. You're sending the criticism up to God. He says, who do you think you are? Uh, It'd be kind of like me shadowing a doctor as he's giving his diagnosis and writing out the prescription and me saying, I think I would use a different medicine. (laughs) They might look at me and say, "Uh, stay out of this. God says to you, you're not qualified to make that assessment. You see, the real problem is not that God finds fault. The real problem is that you and I, we've forgotten who God is and who we are. We we have forgotten that God is the Creator and we're the creature. And there's a, a, a massive distinction. One that we have blurred and forgotten. We feel this distance between God that's right, that is true. But the problem is we shrink the distance. We do it in two ways. One is we think too highly of ourselves. We think that we are more valuable, more significant than we actually are. We are the creature that God has made for His glory. But we think too highly of ourselves. Or we think too lowly of God. We bring God to be like us. We bring Him down. That He's more significant than we are, but the distance between us is small. And probably what we do is some of both. We, we elevate ourselves and we bring God down. Now, as a preacher, one of the things I work on every week is an illustration to try to help the reading of Scripture and, and then an explanation to make contact with our lives, to help you not just hear a description, but to feel it. To, it it's as if you were putting it on and wearing it out. That's what an illustration is supposed to do. Now, we might illustrate this distance between us and God like this. That that God is like the five-star general and we're like the enlisted men, the privates in the army. And so, when He comes in, we're to recognize His honor, to stand at attention, to salute, to obey His every command. He's the general and we're the privates. You know, we recognize His authority. The, the, the problem, of course, with that illustration is that while we recognize His authority, we're, we're still in the army together. Paul gives us a, a completely different illustration, one that really captures the distance between God the Creator and the creature. His illustration is verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. He says, when you think of yourself as a private to God, the general, you're thinking too highly of yourself and too low of God. Even if you were to make him a great emperor and yourself a peasant, you're still thinking too highly of yourself and too low of God. You're still people. The illustration that is biblical, that is correct, is like a potter who works in clay and spins the table and makes what he wants. And the clay never looks back at the potter and says, but I don't want to be an ashtray. 
I, I don't want to be a vase. I don't want to be this thing that you've made me. We have to understand that God is over all of His creation. And the distance needs to be felt. The theologians will, will are prone to take ideas like this and give it a, a technical word, a, a theological jargon word. And the word is transcendence. Now I want to use that word because I don't want to keep saying that same paragraph of God's majesty and greatness and sovereignty and power over and over and over again. But transcendence. God is, is transcendent over us the way the potter is transcendent to the clay. And I'll just be you know, perfectly candid with you. I think it's easy to forget that because we focus so much on the nearness of God. Well, at least I do. And perhaps you do because I'm the one who's up here guiding us through the Scriptures. We focus on the nearness of God, that God is with us, that His presence is with His people, that He is Emmanuel, God, with us, that He says, I am your portion and your great reward, that God gives Himself to us. And sometimes I think that nearness of God loses its power to stun us because we've forgotten about the transcendence of God, that He is the potter and we are the clay. And now imagine that same illustration. The potter gives himself to the clay to rescue it, to give it eternal life. The whole thing sounds now virtually ludicrous. It turns if we forget the transcendence of God and only remember His nearness, it turns amazing grace into pretty interesting grace. It, it turns amazing grace into take-it-for-granted grace. God did not owe you or me anything. He was free to do whatever He wanted. But what He did, He did so that you would be filled. Look what he says. What if? Verse 22. And it's not that he's pondering, here's one idea. His rhetorical question is meant to draw you in. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for that glory? What if God wanted to put on display for you who have received His mercy how powerful He is so that you could go, wow. What if God wanted to show you His justice so that you could stand in awe of Him and take it in? What if God wanted to show you as the, at the, with the backdrop His wrath and His justice and His power on the foreground for you the mercy that you get instead so that you would be stunned by His beauty, by His grace, so that you would be brought to your knees in worship and humility. What if God wanted to do that? What if God wanted you to know who He is so that He would fill you with the joy of knowing this transcendent God Paul is saying that is precisely what God has done. His illustration he used before was Pharaoh and how ten plagues he would 
punish Pharaoh for his injustice to the people of Israel, for his enslaving of them. And each plague would come. And if you remember the story, after the, each plague, just about, Pharaoh would say, okay, I'll let the people go, Moses. Just pray that God would take away the plague. And God would, and then Pharaoh would change his mind. He would harden his heart again. He would say, I don't want to let them go. The circumstances have changed. I'm not under this punishment anymore, and so I'm not going to let them go. God could certainly have wiped out Pharaoh and all of Egypt in one blow. He didn't need to do ten. He didn't need to give Pharaoh ten chances to learn the lesson. But he endured Pharaoh ten times over and over again so that his people would say, what an awesome God loves us. It was so that you could know his glory and enjoy him because he has prepared you. He has prepared you to share with him that glory. And I don't know fully what that means, but something about the beauty of God, he wants to share with you so that you'll become beautiful with him. That's that should make us go, okay, i got to chew on that for a while. I need to let this seep in. This is too big for me. It should lead us to, to not be able to not sin. I need a double negative to describe it. It should make us so overflowing that we, we, we need poetry and music and, and dancing almost. We, we need whatever we can to go, Wow! This God is so great to me. I want you to see that He tells us something about the, the, the nature of the people He's rescuing. In verse 25, He says, Those who were not My people, I will call My people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. It's from the story in Hosea where Hosea's wife has children by another man. And he says, not mine. That, that's his daughter's name. Not mine. And he, he says of this one, the second one, not loved. That's, that's his child's name. Not loved. And it was to be a picture for Israel to see how they were running away from God and, and devoting themselves spiritually to, to false gods. And they were becoming not mine and not loved. But God would draw from those who were not mine and not loved people who would become mine and become beloved. And Paul's saying, that's you. That's you. He said, you started out not mine and not loved. And God said, but I'll love you. And I will make you mine. He says in Isaiah... Concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. The Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. He says, I, I look at these people of Israel, these descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they are becoming numerous, but only a very small group among them are the ones who received mercy. And in verse 29... As Isaiah predicted, the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, had not left us those who would be that remnant. We would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed by fire and brimstone, judged by God because of their sin? Isaiah 
says of the people of God, the ones who had received His promises, the ones who read His law, the ones who had the temple, the ones who had every benefit, they were on the same trajectory as Sodom and Gomorrah, except that God had mercy on that remnant that was there. He stopped them from heading in the trajectory they wanted to go. Do you understand that He is saying just being a part of the church doesn't really mean anything. You can be on a trajectory towards Sodom and Gomorrah and be living right among a bunch of religious people. You can be living right among people who really believe this remnant that was having mercy. You can see them. You can live with them. You can sing with them. You can worship with them. But if you do not trust like them, you're on a trajectory to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the natural direction of our hearts. And so we shouldn't come to Romans 9 and hear about the sovereign workings of God in salvation and say, that's not fair. And and why does He still find fault? We should say, why does He have mercy on anybody? What an awesome thing. What a stunning, powerful, incomprehensible idea it is that God has mercy at all when every one of us is headed towards Sodom. That's where we would live if God doesn't have mercy on us first. So, what shall we say to this? That's, that's the next question. How do we respond? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that they that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. You look at Israel, and they had the law of God. And the law of God showed them what righteousness was, and they never got to righteousness. Gentiles, who never knew anything about righteousness, now are coming to righteousness through faith in Christ. What do we, what do we make of this? Well, he says, if you read all that you've heard, Israel was saying, we knew all this stuff. We knew Jacob and Esau. We knew Ishmael and Isaac. We knew Moses and Pharaoh. We knew the law. We knew all these benefits. And we said, after looking at the glory of God on display among us, I can earn that. I can earn it by the law. I'll be religious and moral enough to get it. That's what Paul says these Israelites were doing. And and it wasn't working. They were looking at the glory of God on display before them and all they wanted was God, stay away, let me earn this. I'll be on my own. I can get there from where I am. You see how they lifted themselves up and brought God down. The Gentiles who were less religious and moral were receiving it as a gift. Receiving this righteousness that was given to them through faith and through faith alone. They trusted a God as they saw His mercy. He called this remnant out. Maybe He'll have mercy on me too. And they trust Him. So, there's, as you hear this, I want to tell you two responses that are wrong. One is Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh saw the power of God on display and he said, alright, I will change my life. I will change my ways. I will bow to this God if you'll just take away the plague. And Moses Prayed, God took away the plague. 
and then say, oh, I had no interest in God at all. It's possible for us to, to come into a, a, an awareness of God's power, particularly as we hurt. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our conscience. He speaks in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so he, he makes us aware of his power when we are hurting and we start to bargain. God, just take this away and I will change my life. And then he takes it away. And we will never change. Because our hearts are hard, like Pharaoh. To bargain with God is not the right response. The other is to determine to save yourself. To look at what God has commanded and say, I can do it enough to earn your favor. God, just give me a little more time and I will pay you back. Let me work at this some more and I'll make myself okay. I will get to your glory. That's the wrong way too. Rather, listen to what was happening to the ones who actually got righteousness, who received mercy. They trusted. They looked at this powerful, awesome, terrifying, electing, sovereign God and said, but He's merciful. I'll trust His mercy. And I want to invite you. Trust His mercy today. Come to this awesome, powerful God and look at His power and His wrath and see in the foreground He's rich in mercy. You might ask them, but, but what if I'm not one of those chosen ones? What if, what if I'm not one that he's said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy? Listen to what he says at the end. As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He put a stone in Zion and he said, there's going to be people who are going to come to that stone they're going to stumble over it. You see, the ones who think they can earn it are going to see Christ and go, I can do better than him. And they'll stumble over that stone. It's going to cause them to fall and to break. But to the ones who trust the stumbling stone, the ones who trust in Jesus and say, He is the one who brings us mercy. He says, anyone, anyone, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. There will be no shame for anyone who trusts in Jesus. If you want to know if you are chosen, if God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy about you, trust in Jesus. And you are. Whoever will come. God's not lying. It's not a false offer. If you want mercy, come. And you will not be put to shame. I was talking with a pastor in town from a, a different denomination and we were debating some theological points, including this one. And he said what I think is exactly right. He said if you looked at the, the archway that was over the gate of heaven itself, and you saw the sign, it would say, Whosoever will come. That is true. And if you want to come, walk through the gate that is the Lord Jesus, by faith. But when you get to the other side, you'll look back. And you'll see on the very same archway, chosen before the foundation of the world. That is true too. And so if you are coming today and you say, I want mercy, then come and trust mercy Himself by the grace and mercy of God who's already come to you. Let's pray. Father in Heaven.
we're unable to change ourselves or to make ourselves fit for mercy, we want you to give it to us freely and to help us believe. Gracious God, have mercy on us. We are sinners. And lead us to your Son in whom we trust by your grace. We pray in his name. Amen.